Exploring the Word of God together allows us to share in the joy that comes from discovering the words of hope and salvation which overflow from our Bibles. Upper Room Media presents to you this educational, enlightening and entertaining Bible study. Prepare to be transformed. Um, I'm going to try and be less verbose this time, so I'm going to put my watch out in front of me for your, all your sakes. Um, St. Paul's a big deal, and for me in particular, because the St. Paul Brotherhood that I belong to is named after him because I'm supposed to be imitating him. Um, I'm not doing very well at it. But the, the, the image or the type of, um, of a celibate servant serving in the world. Um, so that's, he's our patron. So last week we talked about the general themes. We talked about why St. Paul is a big deal, because he is. Um, so this week, God willing, we'll actually get into the letter. So I'm going to spend more time on Romans 1. Sometimes we won't need to do, like, we could do more than one chapter in, in, in a sitting. Today, no, because... Um, it's heavy and it requires some uh, uh, some discussion. So um, one of the major themes of Romans, as you already noted, is God's grace, um, and and specifically in Romans is God's impartial faithfulness and mercy. Right, that this is that this is now an inclusive gospel, and Romans actually in itself is it's a gospel. Um, so. It's God's impartial faithfulness and mercy to both the Jew and the Gentile. Um, and that is going to come through, as we're going to see in this chapter, through obedience of faith. Okay? Of our response to faith. Um, and he's going to use it through the language of God saving righteousness or restorative justice. Which we talked about last week, that word, the Keosini. Right? Which I think I read about 90 pages today on just that word, and I absorbed absolutely nothing. Because um, it was just like, I can't process it all. Um, it's tough. Um, there's a reason why people have been fighting over for the last 400 years. Um, so the actual subject of Romans is not justification, it's salvation. Okay? Um, so tereia. But we must be careful um, to let St. Paul define that for us. Sorry, Go for can it. you just repeat the word you said before and it reminded you? Uh, the okay. Um Which can mean faithfulness, righteousness, justification. It can mean justified. It can be... And then in Greek, there's at least five different variants you can take of every... Did you already study it? So it's like... No, okay, there's like five variants that indicate different things, whether it's possessive, genitive, and they, like there's, there's the cases. yeah the cases there's a whole bunch of them that are used within that um, epistle and they all mean something because um, salvation in St. Paul doesn't just mean forgiveness of sins right so most Christians um, when asked why God like oh salvation why to be forgiven of sins uh, that's part of it there's no denying that's part of it but St. Paul is going to make it clear it's, it's more than that um but the main message we're going to see today is in, in the whole epistle, but starting today, is that humans have turned both from God, okay, and from one another. And so the result is both a lack of righteousness, the Keosini, um, and glory, um, which is something that we don't talk about that, that much. Um, so interestingly, for Paul, salvation 
is about God's restoration, both of righteousness slash justice, because the Kosini can also mean that, and glory to an unrighteous and unjust and glorious humanity. Okay, that's, that's where he's going to be going with. Um, so Paul's under, understanding of the restoration of God's Zikosini, or righteousness, or faithfulness, or, or however it is, and glory to humans, um, occurs by grace-enabled participation. So saying, man's not doing something that fixes himself, okay? Um, man couldn't restore his own glory, right? And that's what makes it grace, that it's, it's God's gift of restoring that to us, okay? And so that's where actually this, the so-called dichotomy between Protestants and, and traditional Christians, Catholics, Anglicans, Orthodox, is not as real as we'd like to think it is in terms of the disagreement. We're all agreed that we don't do that, right? We're all agreed that we can't fix ourselves. Um, and so, and that's one of the main messages of Romans is that it's by no righteousness of our own. And therefore justification isn't really a legal issue because legally speaking, there's nothing we did to be legally justified, right? So it's not that I, I did something that made me saved, it's God did something that made us saved and it was his righteousness, his dikeosini, okay, that makes us um, have righteousness, or that gives us back glory. Um, and that this participation by grace has to be through the death, specifically the death and resurrection of the Messiah Jesus. Okay? Um, so God's righteous and glorified Son um, is the one that makes us righteous and glorified by taking on humanity. Right? It's by uniting his nature to his own that man becomes justified and receives glory again. Um, in the death of our Lord, God has made peace with his enemies, which were the human race. Not because God declared enmity with the human race, but because man declared enmity with God, right? In choosing unrighteousness, in choosing to reject God. Um, and so the project of reconciling all people to himself began in the death and resurrection, but to St. Paul it's not completed. That's why St. Paul talks about how we still need to die. We still need to rise. We still need to do these, these actions. So the work has begun. We have been restored as a people, but the work of salvation is actually not complete. That's why one of, one of the Eastern Orthodox theologians, when they asked him, are you saved? He was like, I'm saved being, um, I was saved and being saved and hope to be saved because it's, it's an ongoing process. I think that was Hopko. Um, and so this peacemaking mission, if you will, includes the gift of God's own self, um, and thus the essential divine attributes and the indwelling spirit of God. Um, so the main thing for Romans is that's the gospel, that's the good news that St. Paul is bringing, and that that good news is for both Jew and Gentile. And that is the same gospel for both. Because there are some, there's a minority of, they're a bit of a fringe Christian group that think that the Jews are still justified with the Old Covenant and that they don't need the Gospel and that only Christian... No. St. Paul is very clear. St. Paul would not be okay with saying that you don't need Jesus for salvation. Whereas he's clearly okay because everybody was hating him for it of saying you don't need the law. Um, so that's the thing. So, very quick on the structure and we'll start. Um, 
under this banner of God's righteousness slash justice, I'm just going to often use the Kyosini to try and capture it all. Um, it's powerfully displayed in the royal Messiah, Jesus. And I say royal because he talks about the Davidic line um, of our Lord. Um, the letter is going to start off by telling us how things went wrong to show us God's faithfulness in spite of our wrong. Um, and so the resulting new situation, that's chapters one through four, okay, is going to be God's faithful response to a faithless people. Okay, that's going to be chapters one to four. Then he's going to move on to, so then what's the new situation? Okay, post, post our Lord, then what's happened? Um, and it's about our dying and rising with Christ. That's going to be chapters five through eight. Um, but then he's going to tackle head on, so then what does that mean for the Jews? Okay, if, 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 if there's this new covenant, if there's this new thing happening in Jesus, what does that mean about the Jews? That's going to be um, 9 through 11. Um, and then the need for the community of Rome to embody the gospel as they live according to the crucifixion and resurrection and holiness. That's um, 12 through 15. And then he ends with a summation of the relationship of everything that he said to the story of salvation. And then he has a little plug-in at the end of his rule, because as we said, one of the reasons for writing is he wants to set up a base and he wants to go west, right? So then he's like, so this is the story and here's what I'm doing, will you have me? Okay, which is very humble on his part. So without further ado, um, Paul will introduce himself. So Paul, a servant or slave, as we said, of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart, which means consecrated, okay? We, we need consecrated servants today too. Um, for the gospel of God. And again, know that it's a gospel, right? This is written before the gospels, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. I'm already going to interrupt myself, sorry. Whenever you're reading a letter, so first of all, I really recommend that all of you read Romans all in a row. Whenever you read any of St. Paul's rhetoric letters, read it all in a row and then go and take it piece by piece because it was written as one letter. It wasn't written to be read in chapters, it was just a letter, right? But keep in mind, whenever you're writing a letter, whether it's an email to your boss, to your friend or something, there's a point to your letter and the language that you use matters. Um, if you're writing about a touchy subject at work, you're gonna be thinking through your words carefully because you don't want to cause a problem. St. Paul does this too. But St. Paul is sometimes watching his words and sometimes he's just grabbing them by the Adam's apple. So remember that in Rome, they had a, a kind of an anti-Jewish sentiment and St. Paul is starting off his letter by saying Jews matter, right? Like he's starting off right from the very beginning um, of saying, of, of establishing Christ through, the, through a Jewish heritage, um, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel concerning his son, the good news concerning his son, who was descended from David, royalty, according to the flesh, and designated son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, very Trinitarian theology in the 50s, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So now he's going to lay out what we're going to talk about. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about, so here's, here's the message of Romans, about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, meaning Gentiles, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So, um, these key terms, okay, so faith, obedience, grace, peace, 
these are Paul's gospel. Okay, this is what he talked about, not just in Romans, these are all throughout the epistles. Um, because peace summarizes the gospel just as much as grace does. Um, so the phrase obedience of faith is really important to Romans. Um, and he's going to actually end with a reference to this um, in chapter 16. Um, because it's going to become very clear that faith and obedience are not two separate responses to the gospel. Okay, because that, that actually is what most of the West has been fighting about for 400, 500 years now. Um, as though they're two separate things, they're not two separate things. And that's why for, for Paul, another way to translate faith and obedience is faithful obedience um, as one expression um, rather than two. Um, that is because the gospel, sorry, my stomach is making noises, um, is a divine and royal announcement because gospel was a heralding, right? It was what the kings like declared, that's the gospel, you ring the trumpet, that's what gospel means. So he's heralding a royal announcement. This is good news from God. It's promised in scripture about God's son. Um, and that this is not just David's descendant, um, but it's God's um, resurrection of the promised Messiah. Um, so, to verse 7. To all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be holy, or saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why in Oriental Orthodox tradition, actually I don't know if it's in all the Oriental Orthodox, but specifically in the Coptic tradition, the greetings among, among the faithful is supposed to be peace and grace. Um, that's like how usual it'll be. We've lost that a lot in English, but in, in Egypt still it's right? peace and grace. Um, um, now, again, reading this in the context of the Romans, I just want you to kind of be aware that Paul's poking, right? Because how many, I don't know how many of you guys have studied ancient Rome, but have you guys heard of the Pax Romana? Mm -hmm. Right? So the, yeah, the declaration of peace. Paul's challenging that, right? Because the Romans were like, we are unifying. We are the reason for the peace in the empire. And Paul's saying, no, you're not. Peace is from Christ, right? So it's actually very... Polemic. Very polemical, right? Like what he's, um, what he's saying. So first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I mention you, I pray always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And it's really, I think it's really comforting to see that the apostle, even though he's in the position of apostleship, right? He's, he's a bishop in the church, he's, he's a patriarch. Um, actually doesn't deny his own need for community, right? Or the benefit that he receives from community as well. I think um, a lot of people in the service, particularly clergy, to be honest, feel that they need to distance themselves from the flock, right? As though they, they're in their own standalone class and they don't need to be, they need to be human. Um, and, and it's nice to see St. Paul um, saying that, because I think most teachers, they would find it weird to show need, right? That you'd be discouraged. If a teacher were to say, oh, I'm so attached to my students, they'd probably be like, oh, no, you shouldn't be attached. 
right? Like you, you need to distance yourself. Whereas Paul is quite openly saying, no, I'm, I'm attached. Um, I really like you and I really want to see you. Um, that we can be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. Um, I come from a monastic community and for us in particular, right, is this sense of like, don't admit um, like attachment. attachment or comfort from, from people because it would almost sound like you become weak. Um, so luckily I'm in St. Paul's Brotherhood so I'm allowed to not be weak, to be weak. Um, uh, the truth is that we are, we are comforted um, by one another's faith, right? That's why it's not my personal faith, right? There's a reason why God created humans in community, right? There's a reason why he said to Adam, it's not good for you to be alone, right? He could have said, I'm good enough for you, right? But he, he didn't, right? He intentionally um, made community. He intentionally made family. And the church is, is one expression of that family. All of humanity is supposed to be, but one particular expression of the church. Um, the commonality of faith um, allows one to advise, to exhort, to bless, to encourage. Um, like if I'm worried about being ill in the presence of an atheist, his advice or encouragement or perspective really might not comfort me. <laughs> Right, like if we don't have something in common that we have, it it means less. Right, it might be nice that they're that they're there, like physically, right? But um, or on on on, I was talking to an, an atheist friend of mine once, and I was just like, because we're we're trying to set the boundaries of respect for one another when we're having our dialogue, where, where he was saying to me, um, if respect to you just means like, sorry, this is a digression. Um, that I'm not allowed to say certain things. That's not respect. And I was like, no, respect to me means that we can understand each other's viewpoints. For example, his father was dying at the time of, of, of cancer. I was like, if I were to be an atheist who thinks that death is good for society from an evolutionary perspective and that really you shouldn't have emotional attachments, I could say to you, you should get over it, that your dad is sick because it's good. Or I could recognize that to you, this is not good and that you're suffering, right? And so not attack you. Right? And so when you don't have something common, you have to set rules, right? You have these uncomfortable things, but there's the bond of faith should be something that brings us um, together. Um, and origin, um, origin, I'm not going to go into read his whole commentary, but he, his commentary on Romans is great if you have access to it. Um, but he's talking about how what you should unite the believers is this gift of faith, um, that he wants to impart some spiritual gift, but he's also talking about receiving a spiritual gift. And so he was like, it's not, it's not a vain meeting, right? It's, 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 it's purposeful meaning that we should also have in our services, because we're going to learn from St. Paul not just the theology here of dogma, but also the theology of service, right? That what unites us is Christ, even if we're not talking about him explicitly, what our unity together should be as servants of God and to your friends and to the faith of everyone that you're with should be in, in Christ. Uh, verse 13. I want you to know, brethren, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He's setting the stage for that. It's for everything. 
And it's also cool to see how um, some people don't get the God's will thing, right? And so they think that God micromanages everything that, that you do, right? And so it's nice to see that St. Paul has his own intentions. He has his own thoughts about what he should do, his own organization of what he should do. And God didn't want the same thing that he did. Um, but it wasn't wrong for him to have an intention. It wasn't wrong for him to have um, a desire. Um, and it's also important from a servant perspective to see that St. Paul is saying explicitly that his ministry is not meant to be exclusive. Um, this is a real tendency of Christian communities of every type, right? Where we want to focus on our own, right? Whether it's by ethnic divisions, whether it's by service, whatever it is, we tend to want to form our club and stick to our club. Um, and that's the exact opposite of the spirit of, of, of service. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness, the Dikeusini of God, is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. These are two short verses upon which were written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of pages um, that were I'm struggling with. Um, this is the thesis of Romans, these two verses. Okay? Um, Paul clearly views the gospel, um, God's gospel and salvation is oriented to everyone, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, he says. Um, so he's identifying that God has been saying that, that God did choose Israel. Okay, he doesn't, he doesn't deny this, neither does Christ. Okay, when the Samaritan woman asks him, um, you know, you say the temple is supposed to be in Jerusalem, and we say it's supposed to be over here, um, which one is right? Um, Christ tells her there's going to be a time where it's neither, which is exactly what Paul's declaring, right? But then he comes back to him and says, mm, but salvation is of the Jews. Right? So he comes back and says, the answer to your original question is that yes, the Jews are right. For now. But the time is coming where through the Spirit, which St. Paul has just said in his intro, that will no longer be the case. Those who worship me in spirit and truth will no longer be divided by ethnic lines or by racial lines or by your ethnic heritage of whether or not you can trace yourself to Abraham or not. Right? Now it's for everyone. So he is saying, indeed, God chose Israel. Um... And that from them comes God's law, God's promises, and the Messiah himself. Right? That this is where he comes from. But the divine election of Israel was never meant to exclusively and solely and permanently at all time belong to Israel. And so now it becomes a source of blessing and salvation. Salvation in the Pauline context of all nations. Salvation here is deliverance. Um, the opening universally of the good news. And that's going to be the theme. And this righteousness of God, that's difficult, um, is not about, again, when people read justification as my personal acts, this is not, it's clearly not what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying here is that it's God's 
faithfulness, and he's going to expound on it in these next four chapters, to Israel, the covenant he made with them. That God is faithful, that God is righteous to this covenant that he made in spite of the infidelity of Israel to that very same um, covenant and that God's saving power, his death and his resurrection proclaimed in the gospel, proclaimed in the resurrection is what it is at work. And that it is through that power that we are saved. And so everything is going to come back to Christ. Right? Everything in this is going to be Christocentric, even though he doesn't say Christ's name a lot in this, in this first chapter. Um, this faithful divine power makes right that which was wrong. We were under the law. We broke the law. We fell short of the law. All had went wrong. Death took over. Right? And so what we're seeing the power of God is his power over death. His power over the covenant. This is what's making us okay again. Um, so it's restorative. Um, it's establishing that which ought to be, but is not. We're not supposed to be at enmity with God. We're not supposed to be dying. We're not supposed to be separated from Him. This is what God is putting right. Um, and so this divine justice is not in the sense of vengeance. It is in the sense of making right. Okay? Because that is the core of the theology here. And it's very interesting. I've been intentionally using Roman Catholic, Protestant traditional, Protestant modern, and Orthodox and patristic commentaries. And it's very interesting to see those who were never affected by the fight of the Reformation never go near certain topics, not because they're afraid of it, because Paul doesn't take them there. Right? So... Reading it in its an original content matters because especially punishment, which is like the West tends to talk more about punishment and 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 um, and a, a penal solution to a legal issue, okay? Which is not surprising because of what was going on in the West in the last four hundred years, okay? But if you look at the Old Testament, the word punishment doesn't exist the way we use it today. And it's very interesting to see how the same word, it always, the word that we, that's translated sometimes as punishment, and I'm saying sometimes because it's very interesting because I did a word study of the word punishment in the Old Testament in the, in the, in the Hebrew. It's interesting that the translators of the Bible, especially King James, sometimes translated the word as punishment and sometimes didn't. Um, and, and with no reason, it's the exact same word, the exact same form. And so punishment in the Old Testament always had a restorative nature to it. It was always something to do with putting right a wrong situation. Okay? I'm not saying God doesn't have wrath. Paul definitely is going to talk about the wrath of God. That's what's going to come. I'm not saying God doesn't get angry. Um, but that punishment is never, here's your crime. Here's the penalty I'm choosing. Okay? Um, and my righteousness is to say, I will call you holy and blessed. Because God doesn't call holy and blessed what isn't holy and blessed. He's not a liar. Right? He can't. Whereas justification is saying, yeah, we're not right. We're not right. We're not right with each other. But I'll, 
I'll fix it for you because you can't, you can't fix it. It's restorative. That's what fixing means. Um, so the divine justice is not vengeance, it's the sense of making right. Um, and that's why the Kiosini, righteousness, justice, justification, justified, these are all translations of that word, are referring to that word that means all of that. Um, we have to keep that in, in, in mind. I'm sorry, I'm going to be a dead, I'm going to flog a dead horse with it today and I won't have to in the future. Um, so the righteousness of God that St. Paul is talking about, the Kiosini Theo, okay, the, the righteousness of God, is not then the righteous, it's not the righteous status that people receive as a gift from God. It's not what the phrase is referring to. Um, it's actually God's <coughs> own uprightness. Okay? It's God's own justifyingness. It's a very, very, very important distinction. Is everyone clear? I, I, I'm hoping I'm not being annoying. What? Sorry? I don't understand. Okay. So the difference is that sometimes when we say the, 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 the faithfulness of God or the righteousness of God, in, in modern times, that has, people have started to confuse that for saying, because God's so nice, right, we're able to um, be called good. And so they start imputing this righteousness to us, that we were, that, that it's us that have been, and it's not us, right? It's, it's God's faithfulness to his own word, to his own people, to his own covenant, that's at play here, not anything else. He revealed the gospel. Yes, actually. That's actually a perfect way to, to say it. Um, both to the covenant and to creation as a whole. Shame. Sorry, what, I feel like there's one specific verse you're saying that people use to kind of that get confused. Which one is that? The faithfulness of God. For in it the righteousness of God, which in some, I'm using the RSV Second Catholic Edition. I'm not sure what yours has in verse 17. The righteousness of God is revealed. Okay, good. Because some will call it the faithfulness of God, and some, some will say God's faith. Some will say God's justification. They're saying that word, because it's translated into so many different ways, will, depending on what your translation says, can lead you to a bunch of different um, interpretations. Some people interpret that particular verse to apply to individuals. Is that what you were saying before? Am I understanding correctly? It's not what we're saying now, but yes, as we were talking about last time. It's this verse right here. Yes, actually the, the whole first, actually the whole book, but definitely in this verse. Okay. I'm a little slow Okay. No, no worries. I'm, I know I'm not actually expressing it well. Um, so, in, in a sense, Romans is a book about God himself. Okay. Um, so this gospel, Romans, discloses that God has rendered his verdict, verdict against evil. Okay, not against people, but against evil. On Jesus' cross and has enacted, and enacted his rescue of creation in Jesus' resurrection. That's what this verse is, is saying. So the rescue mission, so the death is the verdict on evil because sin is death. Okay, so God's pronounced judgment on sin is death because that's the natural consequence of sin, right? For the wages of sin is death, okay? But the enacting of the fixing or the rescue mission is the resurrection, 
right? Because had Christ just died there, right? This is why I'm, I'm uncomfortable, even though you could understand where I'm uncomfortable when people say, he paid my debt. Um, because that doesn't sound like a proper understanding of God's faithfulness. Okay, to use an analogy, it would be like saying, I owed $5,000 to someone. And then someone comes and says, I'll pay the $5,000 for you. That's what some Christians are saying about salvation. That's not what Jesus did, right? If that's what he did, actually there was no forgiveness. Someone had to pay. Someone did pay. Yeah, no, it's saying that there was a debt transfer, right? So I didn't pay, but the debt itself wasn't forgiven. I still had to pay it, right? Whereas what, whereas what I would say in response is that it's not that. It's saying, I'm going to abolish it. Let me use a different analogy to make it more clear. We were sentenced to prison, and we're supposed to do time, right? Christ is saying, I'll go to prison, but I'm not going to prison to do the time. I'm going to prison to release you, and I'd like to destroy prison. I would like to abolish the debt. So can there be a, a, a proper understanding of paying the debt? There can. I'm not saying it's a completely wrong thing. I'm simply saying that if you don't understand it as an annihilation of it, of a fixing of a position, then it's still a little incomplete. right? It's, it's saying that there's just a, a transfer going on, and that justice is owed to an angry father. This is the core of Romans, actually, right? Um, and it doesn't seem to what Paul is saying, because actually the father in Romans isn't angry at people, which we're going to get to in this chapter. He's not mad at the people. Um, so it's something much deeper that's going on, right? That it's not just, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll cover it for you, and now you're good because you don't owe that's what Paul is saying here. It's not because you don't owe anymore. Because then it's like saying, like, oh, that now I'm righteous because I don't owe money. But actually, we're all unrighteous. Right? Is that he's saying, I'm fixing your status. Okay? That you won't be prisoner anymore. That's what we mean by restorative. I'm going to release you from prison, which is, which we're going to read very shortly, is sin. Okay, and sin, he will be talking about personal, and he'll be talking like small s, but he will also be talking about capital S sin, of this state of sin, of what sin is doing to all of humanity. Um, very briefly, we're going to see that. Um, so, about God himself. So, the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah from the initial disclosure of God's righteousness. So, it's... Paul's actually describing this major apocalyptic event, okay, in the resurrection. That's why when he's saying the power of God, we read it casually right now, but to, like, the, the force of what he's writing is huge. This is a, like a huge opening to a letter, right? Where he's like, so let me tell you, this cataclysmic thing has just occurred that has rocked the history of humanity. In God's rising, there's a new power on earth, and it ain't Rome. It's Jesus. Right? And that through this person, what had begun in history through the old people, the people of the old covenant, people of the first covenant, is now being brought to the whole entire world and changing everything. No one's a prisoner anymore because of this man. 
who's not just a man. Right? That's, that's what this is, 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 um, is saying. And so it's the righteousness. Actually, here's probably a better way of, of um, Gina, uh, of, um, of saying it, is that the confusion sometimes is about the righteousness of God or righteousness from God. And it seems here, and we'll see throughout the epistle, you can judge for yourself, that Paul means <coughs> the latter, right? Righteousness from God, of saying, this righteousness that comes from me is restoring you, right? It's not, I'm just, it's not, I'm just, I'm just nice, right? It's actually that righteousness is my character. And so saving is a consequence of me, right? It's not just an active decision I take because I'm nice. It's actually part of my identity, right? Is that I'm, I'm, I'm savior. Um, so salvation for Paul is oriented towards our future day of, of, of deliverance, um, but it also starts right now, that the covenant has been fixed right now, and it's being completed, and that I still need to rise from the dead um, and be acquitted on the day of judgment, um, and therefore have eternal life. That's why for St. Paul, it's like the kingdom. It's, it's now and it's later, right? Salvation is now and it's later. You are saved now. Right? We, we declare this in liturgy, saved, amen. Right? But it's also coming. Right? I still have the day of judgment. I still have to stand acquitted that day. Um, and that's why faith for the hearer is a response of obedience to the gospel. It includes mind, heart, and body. It's not just a declaration. Right? And that's why it's, it's a... It's, and a, a faithful obedience, right? That's why, I mean, if you talk to, to a, a traditional 17th, 16th, 17th century reformer and a traditional 16th, 16th, 17th century Roman Catholic, I don't think that the Protestant would have been okay with saying, I don't need to be moral, right? It was highly unlikely. Right? Luther himself didn't say that. And a Roman Catholic also wouldn't have said at the time, it's my righteousness that brings me to heaven. Right? Things get lost in polemic. Right? And that's, that's what Paul is saying here. Faithful obedience is a much better way of saying it by saying the, the, the two cannot be disjointed. It's a, you, you can't. Right? That's why St. James says, you believe, good for you, so does Satan. Right? So it's not, it's not my declaration that does something. It's that the response to the faith is an obedience to the gospel. It requires a transformation. Sorry, it's getting louder. Um, <laughs> I don't understand that last point about Satan. That I can't just say I believe and I not have a change. Right? It doesn't mean I'm going to be successful every time. But I can't. It's like saying, oh yeah, I, I know that health exists. Um, while trying to say it's okay to eat garbage all the time. Right? I, I, in acknowledging that health is real, 
something changes, even if it's a mindset, right? It doesn't mean I can eat healthy at the time, right? But it means that I, I now know that I can't, if I know that health is true, I know that I can't be unhealthy and healthy at the same time. It's impossible. Um, now, faith, faithfulness are the same word in Greek. Pistis, I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, so when he says in verse 17, is revealed through faith for faith, what it seems to mean here is God's faithfulness for our faithfulness, right? That he's bringing out humanity and God together. Um, and he's going to unpack that a lot in chapter 3 and 4, so we'll come back to that. But that God's faithfulness, it starts with God, okay? The initiation is from God, not from man. That God's faithfulness initiates from man a faithful response, right? It is not we who have loved him, but he who loved us first, right? That, that, that salvation, love, faithfulness, it's first and foremost a work of God, right? And that we respond to that with our own response of faithfulness. Um, I won't get into the nitty-gritty of it because I'll probably bore you, but Paul's actually citing something here. He's not just saying something. He's citing Habakkuk. Um, and this is why people know that Paul was using the Septuagint because the Septuagint translation of Habakkuk 2.4, which he's writing from, is different from the, the, the Hebrew, from the, different, from the Masoretic text. And when he's quoting, he's clearly quoting the Septuagint version. Um, and the Septuagint emphasizes more strongly the God's faithfulness part. Um, anyway, uh, but the word here is signifying, just again, I just really wanted to understand this concept and I'll stop being annoying about it next time, is that even the Hebrew word for faithfulness, okay, that, that would have been the one that Paul would have been quoting from if he was using Aramaic, even that word, so it's not just because he's using Greek, it means fidelity. It means reliability, and it means faithfulness of that sense of restorative. Um, and that's so important because, again, why am I making such a big deal out of it is because most people are not understanding the faithfulness that way. Um, they think it's more of a righteous person living faithful as though it's a human quality or, or, or a virtue. Um, versus, that's why I said you, uncle, said it perfectly, what Paul is saying is that God's saving righteousness is revealed. Right, you said it dead on. Um, and that it effects, it elicits faith. That's what it means by faith for faith. Right, of saying God's faithfulness, not my faithfulness to the law. God's faithfulness to the covenant, God's faithfulness to me, elicits from me a, right, a response of faithful righteousness. It's not that my faithful righteousness is why God interacts with me. It might not be a big deal to you. If it isn't, no problem. It was to a lot of people. Sure. Yeah, so that God's faithfulness, okay, when it says... Okay. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, right? Through faith for faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And that he through who faith is righteous shall live, that's quoting Habakkuk. Through faith for faith? 
through faith for faith. You know, King James says, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Yeah. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Yeah. And that's why almost all modern translations, including a lot of the Protestant ones, actually now have through faith for faith. Um, part of that part I was just reading from was actually from a, a Protestant scholar. Um, is that it, it seems more clear that it's that, it's that East and West are starting to converge actually on this point. Because mm-hmm. naively when I read this, I might think he's referring like, you know, from door to door. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed to the Jew, to the Greek, from faith to faith. Exactly. And that's why we have to look at what he's quoting from, right? Because he says, like, and then quotes. And then you go to what he quotes, and what it was talking about Habakkuk is about God's faithfulness, God's fidelity to the covenant in spite of ours, causing the people to become righteous, right? And so that's why it seems clear, like I said, he'll unpack it again at the end of 3 and through chapter 4, where he makes it very clear that he's saying, no, 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 no. It's not just this faith transition like, like what we would read if you read it literally like that in English, right? Whereas he's referring to Habakkuk where it was, no, it was God is faithful in spite of our unfaithfulness. And hopefully that elicits in us repentance, which means as fixing of faith in that context. What's this word with an H? Just Habakkuk? Habakkuk, yeah, the prophet from Old Testament, oh. chapter 2-4. And now because Paul writes it in Greek, you suggest that he was reading it in Greek? Not just that he's reading in Greek, specifically the citation as he quotes it is word for word the Septuagint, which he does a lot in the New Testament, which is why, like, for sure Paul also knew the Hebrew, um, but it's very clear because of how different the two verses are between the Hebrew and the Greek for that particular verse that he's reading from the Septuagint. Which isn't weird because of where he grew up, right? I think the Septuagint source is not a Masoretic source for Habakkuk. What, what Paul is quoting is definitely the Septuagint here. Because it's Greek. Yeah, not just because it's Greek, because the whole, the whole epistle is Greek, and sometimes he quotes Masoretic in Greek, but he'll be translating. But specifically because it's word for word the same. It would almost be like... If you know the clear difference between KJV and NKJV, right, that you know them both so well, that when somebody quoted it word for word one way, you're like, oh, he's reading NKJV, because you know that text, right? So, which wasn't polemical at his time, right? The, the polemics of Septuagint versus Masoretic wasn't a thing um, in the early centuries, right? Because in the early centuries, it was just what you had. Right, that wasn't it. Wasn't a, a contested, argumented thing. That began more actually after the Jews started to canonize their own scripture, which they hadn't done actually until long after the resurrection. When um, the time of Saint Paul, there wasn't a clear canon of Old Testament yet. Um, that came later, and then and then the Jews said, um, "Let's not use the Greek texts." Um, or anything that doesn't have an origin. Yeah, no, no, just, just to, to know the context. So the righteous will live by faith. Um, okay, the theme. So this theme that he's announced are going to be developed in three ways. Um, what we're about to read is negatively. Okay, what happened to humanity without the gospel? 
um, then positively, okay, in, in seeing God's uprightness manifested through Christ to all sinners, okay, and apprehended by faith. That's going to be chapter 3. And then finally, um, he's going to use the Old Testament um, to show how Abraham was justified through faith and not by um, his deeds. For the wrath of God, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Um, now, there's two things he's saying here that are maybe a little bit not, um, maybe a little bit lost to us in English. He's saying impiety or ungodliness and unrighteousness or injustice. Um, Avikeya, it's the same root word. Um, these are important for a particular reason. They represent the violation, okay, of the basic Jewish understanding of the covenant's two great commandments. Love God, love others. So impiety is to sin against God. To be unjust or to be wicked is to sin against others. Okay, so this is what, why St. Paul is specifically saying those two things. Um, and actually, even to the Gentile, impiety is a big deal. Okay, to blaspheme the gods, even if you're a pagan, was a, was a big deal. Okay, so to them, this was a, a, a strong condemnation that he's, um, that he's making. And so St. Paul is saying, that's what covenantal dysfunction looks like. Whenever you don't care about God, or whenever you don't care about your neighbor, then you are not faithful to the covenant. Okay, that both of them are, are breaking it. Um, and here we see clearly that St. Paul does talk about God's wrath. Okay, a lot of Christians today are uncomfortable with God having wrath, but he does. Um, it just doesn't necessarily mean that he hates people, which is how it's sometimes presented. Um, but God, if he is righteous, he can't be indifferent towards sin. He can't. Right? Like, it's, like we said in, in, a, in a previous time, like, this thing is killing his kids, right? You're, you're not going to be like, oh, I'm just a really nice guy, I'm okay. No, he hates sin. His wrath is on sin. Um, and that's why whenever God encounters sin, it's met with annihilation. Always, right? Because it cannot exist in him, right? That's why um, holy zero or holy wrath is supposed to be, there is a righteous anger when it is directed towards injustice, when it is directed towards sin itself, not when it is directed to a person, right? That's, that's the difference. Um, and in the prophets in particular, in the Old Testament, whenever God is pronouncing his wrath on sin, he says, what are you going to meet? The day of the Lord, my visitation, right? The day of, of, of reckoning. Right? And, and, and that resulted in his own death, right? where he became sin. Because his goal is the annihilation of sin itself. Right? That was the sin offerings that we talked about at the end of John. Um, and so even God's wrath is restorative. Right? Even, his, even his wrath is directed towards fixing things. Um, and so what is God's wrath here um, directed towards? all impiety and wrongdoings of humans, right? So it, it, he is mad that we do that. Um, 
And so when Paul says that all did it, even though right now he's going to talk most of the Gentiles, he is indicating that everybody did. Everyone did break the law, not just, not just the, the Gentiles. Um, but here he's going to come after the Gentiles. So, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Sorry, this is still the Jews, but he's going to get to them, Gentiles in a, in a moment. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So he is talking about to the, the Gentiles now. And he's saying that the Gentiles, at least through nature, could have known through God. Um, but they didn't. But they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, and now he's taking real shots at all the philosophies that, that Rome was, was known for in the Greeks. Um, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man or birds or animals or reptiles. He's taking clear shots at Roman religion, which is a big deal. Right? Remember that Paul, in one of his journeys, um, is almost killed for what he's saying about Roman religion, for what they're accusing him of saying about Roman religion. And now he's not, he's not holding back. Right? He's, he's saying it for what it is. Therefore, God gave them up. We're going to come back to that word. In the lusts of their heart, the desires of the heart, to impurity. I'm not following you. Verse 24, sorry. Yes, yes. Mm. Still, I, I don't think it's the same text. I, I opened Katina, I opened the I can't follow you. For which part? From, from verse 18, even and 19, is completely... Let me see. I'll start from nineteen, I'll join it from there. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Yes. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. So I see where I was going to stop, so I remember to stop. Um, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So he's saying that... It's not, even if they didn't have the covenant in front of them, they had enough to show them that there is error. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and who worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. He's third time now he says God gave them up. For even their women exchanged their natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one for another, Men with men committing what is shameful, 
and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So, he's talking about homosexuality at the beginning of it, but he's not saying that homosexuals are this whole list of things. He's saying that all people who left God, and one of the examples he gives are homosexuality, among these other ones. Because some people use this verse to say no to homosexuality, which it is. It is saying no to homosexuality. But that they'll then say because homosexuals are, and then that whole list. He's actually saying everyone who turned from God are a list of these things. All of them or some of them, take your pick, including us when we are unfaithful to the covenant. So, this is Paul starting to deal with sin, capital S, and sin, small s. Okay? Small s being personal sins, and then capital S being the whole dominion of sin um, over humanity, which he's going to tell us what God does with it. Um, So this section is clearly the bad news. This is not the good news, right? This is not the gospel part. Um, But he's trying to show the cause, okay, for the manifestation of God's wrath, okay, of God's anger and and, and righteousness. Um, The bad news is going to bring out the good news, um, which is why elsewhere he's going to say, so should we sin to see God? No, right? Like, like that's not going to be the point. But, um, But Paul is not speaking of human beings... And, and their unrighteousness or their attempts to achieve uprightness, okay, in God's sight by observing the law. He's talking about God's um, reaction to humanity throughout the gospel, including to the wrongs, right? This is the theme that, that he's taking. Um, so even the topic of God's wrath right now, he's saying this not in the context of individuals. He's saying this in the context of the history of humanity, Okay, that's what I'm saying. We have to look at what Paul's saying. Because he's saying, here's what this whole group of people called the Gentiles did when they strayed from the covenant. He's going to come back and say what the Jews did. Right? But he's starting right now and saying, Gentiles, you messed up royally. You as a people, you did X, Y, and Z. Right? And this brought on you God's wrath. Um, and so he calls all of what they're doing idolatry. Um, and that And what is the idolatry? That man worshipped the creature rather than the creator. And that the result of that was the list of all the sins. Not that their sins were that cause. It was the idolatry that produced in them all of those things. Right? And that's why he starts with a natural theology. Right? He starts off by saying... The eternal power and divine nature are revealed in creation. He's saying to the Gentiles, you, 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 you could have seen no it. Right? And that's why when he brings up homosexuality, he says, even in this you disobeyed nature. Right? That's why he says, women turned against the natural. Men turned against the natural and exchanged the natural use for a lie. 
right? He's saying that you should have been able to see by the very order of nature, right? That what you were doing um, wasn't right. Um, and that what that led to was the darkening of the mind. And for St. Paul, there's an exchange going on here, right? That God's giving them up, that he says three times. The God's expression of his wrath is saying, no, your punishment is the consequence of your very choices, right? He's saying, look at the result of, of this thing. It all went downhill, it was destroyed, right? Um, and that's why when we get to the justification, he's gonna say, well then how did it get made right? How does the natural order get restored? Right, he's, he's setting this, this narrative up. Um, and so this acquitting that's gonna take place um, is not because people were innocent, um, it's that even though they were, they were, they were, they were, they were sinners, the actual innocent person who is Jesus, right? This is, he's going to express more in Romans 5. Um, has himself been made sin. To become the sin offering. Right? That it's going to be made right because he's setting up this gospel of you can only be made right through Jesus, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Right? And so it's going to be in this person of, 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 of our Lord. Right? that we're going to be made right. He's setting up this sense of no matter what walk of life you, life you come from, your solution is going to be found in a person, right? And that person has to be the Lord. It can't be anybody else. Um, so sin is not just misbehaving. This is really important for us spiritually, okay? It's not just breaking a commandment as a general thing. It's actually a very deep thing that we're doing when we sin. It's a repudiation. It's a rejection of God. It's a refusal to really know Him. Right? It's the breaking off of a relationship. This is, it's heavy stuff. Right? It's saying, I'm going to act like you don't exist. Right? Like the prodigal son that we'll read in a few weeks. Right? Where it kills me, the prodigal son, we all know the story. When the prodigal son is saying, give me my inheritance, really what he's saying to his dad is, let's pretend you're dead. Because that's what you do when you get your inheritance. It means you're dead. Right? That this is what we do when we sin. It's a personal rejection of the Most High God. Right? It's, it's, it's a big deal, and God has every right to be upset about it. Um, so to me, just on a spiritual note, I'll, I'll end the spiritual note, because I know I've taken over too much time, but... Um, Paul's really matter of fact here, right? Like, like there's, I, I, I love it. But he speaks of the gospel as fact, not as theory, right? This is, this is the power of the gospel to those who, who wield it. This is the, this is the faith part. Um, he believes so fully and really, right, truly, that he speaks with, like, with boldness. I'm not ashamed. I am not embarrassed to say this, right? Whereas, most of us reading that passage about homosexuality in today's society would be like, um, I, I mean, like, but love this sinner, hate this sinner, and we get really anxious about what people might think. Well, the Romans were actually okay with homosexuality. That's why he's writing it, right? It was not that acceptable for adult men to do it, but it was more acceptable for it to be done until you got married, right? So 
Paul speaking boldly against a, a, a relatively accepted cultural practice um, and saying, no, that's messed up, right? And he's not, he's not afraid to say it to them. Um, I think we lack that today, right? I, like, I, I do, I, I do. Um, Was Sodom considered a Gentile nation or a or degenerated Jewish? Sodom would have been Gentile because it was the very beginning of the of the formation of the of the, of the Jewish uh, people, right? Because Abraham, this was the time of Abraham, yes. right? So they were literally just called. They didn't even have the law yet. Because to me, all these descriptions, the uh, falling away, mm-hmm. seems to me it reads like Sodom. Well, so he, it is and it isn't in the sense that, yes, Sodom is one of them. But if you think about it another way, the belief, even more clear to them than it is to us at the time, is you all originated from these first people. So at some point, you were part of God's people that rejected him, right? And you moved out to the West at some point in history, right? So they would have seen them in that light still. Um, and what's really compelling to me is, again, remember what the, the brief biography of, of Paul, maybe not as brief as it should have been, but is this was a real wrestling for Paul, right? Like, like we were reading this like casually, but for, for Paul, who was Saul, who believed there was no salvation outside of the law, this has, was probably really rough for him, right? Like what he's proclaiming here he must have wrestled with this for a while before he arrived at this conviction, right? Because this is totally anti-Saul carrying the clothes while they kill Stephen, right? This is a completely different theology than he himself would have accepted. And that's, that's where he gets his conviction from. And that's why don't be afraid to wrestle with your faith, right? We, we, I don't know about Western culture today. I, I, I do externally, but... I know that in, in Eastern culture, to question was seen as really dangerous, right? Of being like, no, 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 you just have to have faith, just have faith. But that's not the kind of faith Paul's talking about, right? Whereas this wrestle with our Lord produced this, right? Like this wrestling with his faith produced this, right? Where he's bold and unapologetic, and yet he's so human and so kind, and yet he's saying, I'm comforted by you, right? I need you. I rejoice at you. But I got to tell you the truth, right? The truth is the truth. I'm not going to hide from that. This is, this is what it produces. It produces strong men and women. Um, I mean, he suffered. He was ridiculed, and he's suffered a lot by the time of the writing of this epistle. He's lost his prestige with the Jews and the scholars, right? Like, think, think of, like, um, imagine if Richard Dawkins, to use him as an example again, or, or imagine if, like, I don't know, the, the, the dean of St. Vlad's, okay, of, of the Orthodox, famous Orthodox seminary in New York, were to suddenly come out and be like, I'm a Muslim, right? Or I'm a Seventh-day, no, or I'm a Mormon. That's probably a better example. If you were to come out and say, actually, I'm a Mormon, right? The whole theological community would be like, how did you get there, right? On how on earth did you... Like, it just, it doesn't jive, right? This is what Paul has gone through. That's why he's even writing in anticipation of these Judaizers who are going in front of him saying, don't listen to him, don't listen to him, he's messed up, right? So he's, there's a lot of personal expense here. Um, 
And this sense of Jew and Gentile, I think we really need to take it seriously. Um, that we sometimes, as Christians, I think, care about the Gentile more than the Jew. And I don't mean that literally. Um, by that, what I mean is that Paul says to the Jew first and then the Gentiles. We sometimes care more for the outsider than we do for the insider. Like, sometimes we forget there's a lot of people on the inside struggling, right? And that sometimes there's a lot of people in the, in the inside that are struggling with their faith or that are uh, sad or depressed or broken, or we're all broken in some way, of saying we must have mission. We must go to the Gentile. I'm not saying that we don't need to do that. But we must also care for, for, for those inside too, right? And that, that St. Paul captures um, both of you. The last Christian to me is, is, is like the Jew. Um, but the only way to encounter this reality is living righteously through faith, right? Like it's, it's in that belief, it's in that in participation in the sun, right? It's, in, it's, it's in, in, in reaching out to the grace that is that power, right? And saying, that's what I'm saying, we're not as in disagreement as, as one might think from, from what the Protestants are saying. And in terms of saying, God is offering the grace, it's not me, right? I have to respond to it. But that grace begins in him, right? It doesn't begin in me. The grace begins in God. It's God's faithfulness that I have to enter into, that I have to accept. Um, and from there, I can now grow, right? From there, I can go from Saul to Paul. But I have to encounter and take um, from that um, grace. And then the last, sorry, last meditation very quickly that I just had, was in my mind when I was reading the last part was this exchanging truth for a lie thing. A lot of people struggle with why doesn't God do this? Or how could God allow X, Y, and Z? And what God is saying is, I respect your decision. So what you choose has consequences, right? And what we read about, about what happened in, with, Ro- with the Romans when he's saying, they did this, they did this, this is, that's modern society, right? Where he said you became debased creatures, worshiping animals, on the radio now, it's, it's not even, it's, it's said you're just a, an animal, right? That there's, no, there's nothing different anymore about you and an animal, right? Um, there's even, and, 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 and it gets more ridiculous there. I don't know if you guys know PETA, I'm not tearing apart PETA, the animal rights organization. I don't know if you guys know that they, they sued, um, this was like 15 years ago now or something like that, but they were suing a human on behalf of an animal. Um, and the only reason why it wasn't a successful lawsuit was not because it was a lawsuit on behalf of the animal, but because PETA couldn't prove that they were the real representatives of the animal, because the animal, <laughs> the animal. Um, actually, and I'm not, I'm not even just saying it'd be funny, where I'm just like, this is what it turns into. Where we don't know the difference between a human and an animal anymore, right? Is that when we worship, the, the, the created or the creature instead of the creator this is, this is how we end up even today glory to God
I went over time again, but we did start late in fairness. So we didn't but any questions or comments or criticisms? Or no, I just have a small question. Yeah. You said it multiple times when you said God gave them up to, and then you said it three times. Mm -hmm. Did, what's that? Like, can you use different words to describe that? He let them have their way. Yeah. And St. Paul uses that in, in Corinthians when he says, deliver him to Satan. And then it follows with that he might be saved. So he's saying, let him have his way. It's demonic, right? He's not saying, oh, let me use Satan to help you, right? But it, it literally means, do you want? Which parent sometimes tells his kids, find do what you want, right? But then the rest of the the consequences and those choices. Yeah, you unfair if God was holding them accountable for that and St. Paul saying he doesn't and that that's God's faithfulness in spite of right he's just trying to make a point of if you're a Gentile get over yourself because Romans have a Gentile ego problem and if you're a Jew get over yourself because you didn't keep the covenant either and so it's God who is faithful to humanity because all of humanity was not faithful to God false mark it's quite all of that I read ahead in verse 1 of chapter 2. And he uses a lovely voice. And then no one votes. No one judges. Yeah. And that's, and, and that's going to be his point, right? And he's going to say, because we all suck, <laughs> right? Literally, um, is what St. Paul is going to say that we. What, what can we boast? Which of us hasn't done those things? Right? But it is God who in spite of us loves us. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.